And now that I'm here, the only thing that is actually keeping me here is knowing that there is no destination. Truly, for me, the destination is death. And all I want to do is kick that as far down the road as possible and have the best life until I get to that finish line. And the way I do that is by enacting personal responsibility and really working on my behavior. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopst, and today's guest is actor Ethan Suplee. He is known for his roles in films like Remember the Titans, Blow, and Mallrats, as well as his roles in TV shows like Boy Meets World and My Name is Earl. But outside of his acting career, Ethan also has an incredibly inspiring story. He has lost over 250 pounds, and Ethan has also been sober for over 20 years. Today on the show, we discuss what helped Ethan lose over 250 pounds and get sober, why you should aim to kill your clone every single day, two things you must focus on if you want to stay sober, why eating healthy is more challenging than remaining abstinent, how Ethan's past has shaped how he parents his kids, what has helped him sustain his transformation, how to improve your relationship with discomfort, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Ethan Suplee to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Ethan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Doug. My pleasure. I'm excited to chat with you, and you have an incredible story from everything you've overcome from a weight loss perspective, an addiction perspective, what you've done in the entertainment industry. But I think a good place for us to start is you've, you've made this, this quote um, fairly famous in how you deal with the day-to-day of a lot of the mindset and a lot of the mindset and trauma stuff that... Um, has come about just because of your journey with sobriety and, and the weight loss and stuff. And that, that phrase is, I killed my clone today. Yeah. Explain that. Okay. So I was doing a TV show in 2016 called chance. And, uh, I think it's a great TV show. We did two seasons. It's on Hulu. If people want to watch it. And I was playing a character based on a real person. So, the the character that was created for me to play was based on this guy, Thomas Kyer, who um, got introduced to Hollywood. Did you ever see the movie with Tommy Lee Jones and Benicio Del Toro, The Hunted? I did not, no. All right, so it's a movie about like special forces guys, and specifically, um, they get into a lot of knife fights in this movie. For making this movie, they wanted to find the best knife fight guy and they went to like the tier one special operators military dudes and said who's the best knife fight guide who's the best edge weapons expert you have and the u.s socom said tom kyer and so they brought him out they shot that movie in oregon they brought him out to be like the technical advisor on this movie and so he met the producers and the writers And they loved him. And he's like a very interesting guy. He got introduced to a writer named Kem Nunn. And Kem Nunn wrote a book called Chance and created this character that was loosely based on Tom Kyer. So then when we go to do this TV show, I'm doing all this martial arts training. And they say, well, Tom has a very specific type of martial arts he trains. So you got to actually train with Tom. So then I met Tom, became very good friends with him. Kill Your Clone was actually something he would say in training tier one guys. It was like, he's an, he's a combatives instructor. So, but it it isn't limited to combatives, but it was this idea that every single day we want to get better. And, and whether that's by reading something or by training or going to the gym or sticking to a program you've laid out for yourself, how are you able to kill a version of you 24 hours in the past. So the idea is like every day I'm going to meet a a 24 hour younger version of myself who hasn't experienced this day. What have I done in this day to be better than that guy? And all it takes is one tiny little improvement to be able to beat him. 
And that resonated with me on so many levels. You know, this idea that I got to do something every day to improve or I'm going to stagnate. And, you, you know, I know you as a, you're a sober person, you lost a lot of weight. There are certain aspects of that for me are like non-negotiable, you know, and, and certain types of behaviors that are non-negotiable and a certain amount of honesty with myself that is non-negotiable and improving every day is non-negotiable. And it doesn't have to be that I read, you know, 10 chapters of some philosophy book or hurt myself in the gym because I exercised to the point of failure on everything or starved myself. It's not that extreme. It's just a, a small improvement. I love that. Like just focusing on doing whatever you can just to get a little better each and every day in whatever area of your life you're trying to work on. Um, I'm curious, like when you started to adapt this mentality, where were you at? Like in your weight loss journey, where were you at in even like sobriety, like why was it so pivotal for you? I'd been sober for a while at that point. And you know, it's strange because I never really applied kind of the principles with which I achieved sobriety to weight loss because there is the fact that you have to eat every day, right? Or, you know, if for the, for the, uh, staunch fasting people who are really into fasting, you, you do eventually have to eat, right? You know, these people who do, who really like the, the water fasts for some period of time, they're gonna eat or eventually you die, right? There's gonna be food involved. And so that was kind of hard thing for me to wrap my head around. So I thought of them as two very different things, right? Sobriety is very different than whatever I have going on with food. You know, when I met Tom, I was still kind of hung up in trying to figure out these diets that I looked at as solutions to my problem. And really similar to drugs and alcohol, mostly drugs, the drug isn't the problem. The problem is me. The problem is my relationship with the drug. The problem exists entirely with, within me. And when I started to look at food in the same way, it became much easier for me to deal with. When I stopped going like, the problem is carbohydrates, right? If carbohydrates weren't a part of the equation, I would be fine. Not true. I can overeat meat. I can overeat olive oil. I can overeat avocados. Um, I can definitely overeat cheese. So when I started to get more into like my own responsibility, how do I fix myself? How do I fix my relationship with food? How is my behavior contributing to these problems? That was really when I, I made the most lasting change that I've ever experienced. The, the, the biggest longest, you know, cause I've been able to lose weight. I can lose a bunch of weight doing crazy stuff. That's not sustainable. When I started to think about this as like a lifelong pursuit that wasn't going to be fixed by weight loss, it, it made all the difference. I'm curious being that you are this person who's in a way had a health, unhealthy relationship with instant gratification, getting things immediately, whether that be you know, instant gratification with stuff to, to numb yourself in the way of, um, with food or, um, addictive substances. I'm sure there's an instant gratification thing also with fame and being in the entertainment industry. How are you able to like transform your relationship with that and, and be able to like practice patience and trust the process, enjoy the process to be able to maintain, um, your, your, the weight loss that you, to, to maintain like everything that you've done with your weight loss? Well, I, I really think it, it is the, the idea that, that I'm not going to ever be fixed. I'm not ever going to be solved. There is no end to, to any of this, right? So with every diet I ever did, I, I looked at it as a short-term thing that would handle the problem. And it just never did because the problem kept returning. And so when I Stop thinking about it that way and thought of it more as like a lifelong pursuit in, in the same way that I think about sobriety. Now, that doesn't mean that today I'm thinking I'll never eat birthday cake again or something like that. Now, I, I, I am with sobriety going like, I don't ever want to do cocaine again. I don't ever want to go out and buy heroin again. But with food... I am still getting through today in the same way that I'm getting through today as a sober person, 
And I might have birthday cake again one day, but my behavior, the way I have birthday cake, I, I don't know why I'm saying birthday cake. I don't even fucking like birthday cake. Uh, you know, let's talk about pizza or cheeseburgers or something like that. Cause that's something I actually like. I might have that again, but it's going to be very controlled. It's going to be pre-planned. It's not going to be done in with the same behavior that it was done before going to be some time under my belt of not having had that. So it is different in that sense. But when I think about my behavior with food, that is something I think about as something that will be needed to be kept in check for the rest of my life. So is the reason that you don't eat birthday cake or pizza or hamburgers or whatever food that you're craving now as like even like a very small percentage of your dietary pattern, is it because you're afraid that you're going to go off the rails with that food? Or is it like a physique goal? Like what is your like hesitancy to regularly include that stuff? My hesitancy is mostly in how I feel when I'm being really honest with myself about what I want from food. I, I no longer really want comfort from food. I, I understand getting together with my family and having a Thanksgiving meal, which I've had a few of those where I'm, I'm going to have a little bit of everything, but I'm not going to eat to the point where I'm euphorically over full. And I might pass on dessert on those instances too. It, it, it's more the behavioral stuff that I'm trying to keep in check. When I eat a cheeseburger from... I mean, I haven't had McDonald's in, in a long time, but like, I'm trying to think of the last cheeseburger I have. I can't even remember, but I, I do remember the last time I had pizza. And so when I eat that pizza, I don't feel good after I eat it. I'm often hungry. I've way exceeded my cal calories for the day and it's not producing what I want it to produce within myself. Does that make sense? Like it, I'm, I'm not getting the nutrients in the, in the ratios that I want to get them. So what I'm getting is a momentary pleasure of, of flavor, whatever situation has been set around that, that's appealing to me, but I'm not getting all the stuff out of it I want. And then I'm not feeling great afterwards. And that's just me being as radically honest with myself as I can possibly be. That all, that all makes sense. Because I think once you eat healthy for a good for a bit of time, like when you eat something that's highly processed, deep fried, full of like, you know, saturated fat and, you know, highly processed carbs, you feel like crap afterwards. So you look at it and you're like, why am I even doing this? Like, what's the point? Like, why am I going to eat something only to, you know, pass out for two hours or to have you know, intestinal issues or whatever the case may be? I'm curious, like, I know that at one point you weighed like well over 500 pounds. And as you were like beginning to to gain all this weight, like, were you aware of some of the potential health risks that you were facing or had you just accepted that that was just your reality? You know, it's kind of like waking up one day and realizing you need a haircut on your way to needing a haircut, unless you're like a, a Marine who keeps it high and tight or something like that. And then on week two, you, you, you're going like, fuck, I'm getting, I'm looking like a hippie at this point. Right. You wake up one day and you're like, oh my God, my hair is so long. It's crazy. I need a haircut. But it happens so slowly every day you're, you're growing hair so incrementally slowly that you're not noticing it as it happens. I tried to ignore things like health markers, you know, like I, I wasn't really paying attention to that. In the late 90s, there was a solid year and maybe it was like the year 2000 actually where I was over 500 pounds. I was a drug addict. I was in the beginning of congestive heart failure, which I, I didn't know what that was. It was just this abnormal swelling I was experiencing. And I was pretty convinced, like if I laid down flat, I couldn't breathe. There was a lot of pressure on my chest. And I was fairly convinced on a regular basis that I was going to die in my sleep. And that didn't really freak me out all that much. Like I was kind of okay with that. Why? I don't know. I have no idea. I was doing a lot of drugs and it just wasn't that scary. It wasn't until I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure and told that I was going to die. And maybe that somehow it became real. Like it was this thought prior to that, like I could die tonight 
and I didn't really care. And once a doctor told me you are going to die, then that was like the beginning of me taking action. And before we get into like you taking action and kind of getting more into the comeback part of your story, I'm interested to know, um, I know a lot of this, a lot of these poor behaviors, the, the weight gain, the, the addiction and stuff like that stemmed from a, some deep emotional pain. What was that emotional pain for you? And when did you like begin to, to see things really taking a turn for the worst as you look back now? I feel like I was always a fairly emotionally troubled kid. There's nothing that I can point to and say, this happened to me and it screwed me up. Like I don't have any trauma in my childhood. I just was not happy. I didn't feel like I fit in. I went out of my way to not fit in because of that. Yeah, so I, I don't know what that comes from. And as far as it turned for the worst, um, the first time I kind of experienced opiates, it was such a release from that pain. You know, I used to think of opiates as antidepressants, and I really thought, like, I feel good. I, like, not just physically good, but, like, I have a personality that I'm proud of when I take this stuff and I wondered why they didn't try to use them as antidepressants for people that had whatever condition I had. I mean, it's definitely a great way to, to check out and to escape a lot of emotional pain and to like, give yourself this antidote to not having to deal with emotions, not having to deal with life, uncertainties, anxiety, stuff like that. Going back to the food for a second, I know that there was like a moment like early on you were at your grandparents' house and like they in a way like wanted you to start dieting. You weren't allowed to have like a certain type of food. Like as you look back at that, was was do you think that that was like the catalyst, you know, for 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 some, for certain things? I have trouble as a parent putting any blame on them. I probably felt resentful towards them for a while. But then now, as a parent myself, I came at parenting from the point of view of, like, I didn't want to be a point of opposition to my kids. You know, not that I wanted to have kids that were running around like maniacs doing whatever they wanted and, like, tyrants. But especially with stuff like um, food and drugs, which were... I worried about passing my behaviors on to them and based on the behaviors that were present in my childhood, which were largely enforced abstinence. My parents didn't drink. There was never alcohol in our house. Drugs were super taboo. And uh, food was this kind of enforced thing on me. I just wanted to go another way, right? And I think that's probably a fairly typical way parents uh, parenting goes. Like the kids go, like, my parents screwed me up. I, I want to do everything in the opposite way that my parents did it. So my version of that was I'm not going to enforce what my kids eat. We're going to have open conversations about drugs and alcohol, and my kids are going to be free to experiment and do what they need to do, literally in an attempt to keep my problems away from them. It, it, that was the thought. And then my, uh, my daughter, who's now 18 or about to be 18, uh, developed type 1 diabetes when she was four, and suddenly we had to start counting her carbohydrates and really becoming restrictive about what she ate. And it, it, that was maybe up until that point, the hardest thing I'd ever had to do because it, it was directly in opposition with what I wanted to be as a parent, which was you want to have cake, have cake. You know, it's up to you to figure out how much cake you want to have. I'm not going to stop you from eating cake because that was what was done to me. And then I felt that I got screwed up. So I think at some point as a parent, we being responsible for these little kids, my daughter at four, I suddenly was counting how many grams of carbs were in a bowl of pasta and giving her a shot. And then... There would be times that she wasn't going to finish her bowl of pasta that she said she wanted. And now I've given her too much insulin. And now we have to figure out like a sugary drink for her to have. And I'm making her drink that so her blood sugar doesn't go too low because that's actually more dangerous. And so 
from the perspective of as a parent, I look at what my grandparents did. I look at what my parents did, and I just think they perceived that they were doing the right thing. They saw a kid who was overweight. And when I look at pictures of myself now, I don't think I'm overweight back then. They did, and I probably was, but not really in the way I became overweight or in the way even I see kids being overweight today. Like there's obesity now in children and I wasn't obese. I was a chubby kid and not even really that chubby, but a little bit of baby fat. Um, this is something I looked at in my own kids and never thought twice about like, well, we need to start slowing, regulating what they eat. They, I find that kids grow wide and then tall and then wide and then tall. And so I don't like to blame them. I don't like to say this is all their thing. I, I, I surely had something going on with food before that, or I don't think they would have perceived it as a problem. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not looking for you to necessarily blame anybody, nor do I agree that that's like the right thing. I do think what happens, especially as kids, you really don't know any better. You don't have a high level of emotional intelligence or maturity. So certain things might happen and you, and you might see it one way when it's really like something else that's going on and you're not able to really, you know, develop some sense of reality of like what actually it, what's, what's going on in the bigger picture, right? And then you end up like thinking a certain thing and then forming your own beliefs about yourself and your self-worth and then that leads to other behaviors um and a lot of people though like they get caught in that trap where they're like pointing back to their childhood or they're pointing back to a divorce they're pointing back to fill in the blank of something unfortunate that happened to them or that was said to them and they use that as an as an excuse to not make the change they need to make it in their life did you ever fall into that trap throughout your journey? And if so, like, how did you escape the victim mindset? I definitely feel like I had the victim mindset, but more, I thought of it as like a genetic problem. Like I can't eat carbohydrates. That was like, for the longest time, I really, I really believed I was allergic to carbohydrates. And then I felt bad for myself about it. Right. But I didn't fall into the trap of like, my parents did this to me. My, you know, there were certainly other ways that I tried to take the responsibility away from myself and place it on some external source in, in order to lessen my ability to fix it. Right. And and what I found in the end was it all exists within me and it's all up to me. What, if I want to change something, I just have to change it. Blaming or even sitting around and thinking too long about what the cause is, unless the cause is contributing to current problems, right? But even that, if I fall down and break my leg and I refuse to do physical therapy because I'm upset about the way I broke my leg, then that's still my fault for not getting better, right? Getting better or progressing is all entirely up to me. I'm most comfortable thinking about today. Am I okay? I'm okay. Can I get better? I can get better. That's it. That's all that matters. And, and now look, if, if, if I am actually allergic to something and I continue eating that thing, that's a problem, right? But I wasn't actually allergic to anything. And I was just trying to create these kind of brain matrixes to reduce my own ability to solve myself or to, you know, progress in a way that allowed progress for myself. And so I'm interested to know, like you, you mentioned that sometime in the nineties, you were over 500 pounds, you were addicted to drugs. You had been, I guess, warned that you were you either had or were going into congestive heart failure. Um, what did the day to day look like for you then? Because I know, like, remember the Titans came out, what, like the year 2000 or something like that. So you were still like in the, in the, in the prime of your acting career. Like, how did this, how did this all um, impact everything? I, I remember having this thought like way back then that I like never missed a day of work. Right. And like, that was this badge of pride. You know, there was at one point there was a heroin drought in Los Angeles and you couldn't, you couldn't get heroin. And I was in the middle of a job and working and I had a delivery guy who was out. And then I went downtown looking for heroin at all the normal places. It used to be Bonnie brand six and they were out and you couldn't, you just couldn't get it. And so I was then dope sick for a couple of days at work and, but I never missed a day. You know, I was 
500 pounds and coming off drugs and still working as an actor. Um, so, you know, I, I, I was, I moved very slowly. I, I didn't sleep well. I, I ate just an insane amount of food and I did a lot of drugs and every single thing kind of numbed something else. What was it? What was it numbing for you back then? You know, I, I, I just think I wasn't happy with, there was, there was no sense of comfort in just existing, right? Like uh, just, you know, I could say like just driving to work was painful. And so I needed to numb that out and having a conversation with somebody was painful. And so I needed to numb that out. The whole world seemed to be a source of discomfort for me. And so anywhere that I could find relief from that, I was going to get it. Yeah, that makes sense. I will say that I have come to enjoy discomfort, you know, like there is a part of me and I think there are levels to this too, right? Like, you know, I think that um, there was a point in time where I got really into suffering on a bicycle. Like that was a big thing. You gotta, you gotta love suffering to ride a bicycle. And we're talking like over the course of hundreds of miles with thousands of feet of elevation gain and kind of anybody in any condition to do that, you're gonna suffer. It's gonna be really hard. And so there was some aspect of that that I really got to love this fascination with suffering. Like, you know, something is happening and it can become wonderful, this, that kind of pain. Right. And then if that kind of pain is wonderful, then other kind of pain, kinds of pain can be wonderful too. Like doing a really hard set of, you know, squats in the gym can be wonderful. That pain can be wonderful. And then you could go too far, right? And you can get so into that pain and killing yourself in the gym that you actually damage yourself structurally. And then you can't go to the gym anymore unless you're David Goggins and you're telling yourself to shut up, bitch, and running on a broken leg, right? But like <laughs> yeah. outside of that, like most people with a broken leg are not running anymore. So I think the the line of enjoying suffering definitely should exist for each person. They should figure out where that is. But I was avoiding suffering at all costs. And, and there were aspects, too, that I was even unaware of. Getting to 500 pounds doesn't happen overnight. But I would be willing to bet for any normal-sized person, if they woke up tomorrow at 500 pounds or more, there would be a tremendous amount of suffering involved in just that. Like, just that existence at that size is painful when it happens gradually over time, you kind of don't notice it. So once it's, once it goes away, there's such a relief there that it's like, okay, now I can make myself suffer in other ways. I can make myself suffer intentionally at the gym because I'm not suffering every time I stand up. I'm not suffering in my sleep. I'm not waking up in severe pain because 500 pounds is pushing down on my hips all night. You know, speaking of suffering, pain, um, uh, just discomfort, what really inspired you to just say, you know what, enough is enough. I'm, I'm tired of avoiding discomfort. I'm tired of, of suffering. I'm just not happy with where I'm at. Like what, what's, what started or what, what inspired you to, you know, find sobriety and, and, um, and try to lose weight. Confidence, maintaining a clean diet, staying active and exercising discipline are key indicators of a healthy individual. The practice of discipline extends to various aspects of life, including sleep patterns, dietary choices, and overall body care. Embracing discipline not only yields short-term benefits, but also lays a strong foundation for long-term health. It is important to recognize that skin health is an integral part of this holistic approach and should not be disregarded. Fortunately, incorporating skincare into your daily routine can be effortless, and that's where Caldera Lab comes in. With their products clinically proven to reduce wrinkles, fine lines, and signs of aging, Caldera Lab proudly stands as a leader in men's skincare. I'm a big fan of taking care of my skin and didn't realize I was only scratching the skincare surface by using store-bought products and getting a facial every few months. I'm a 35-year-old bachelor and spend a lot of time on camera, and I decided that I need to do an even better job at maintaining my healthy skin. 
After seeing many of my friends use Caldera Lab, I decided to try their top-notch products. Their formulas combine pharmaceutical-grade science with nature's purest and most potent ingredients and are simple to use. I've been using their Regimen Bundle twice a day and have already had several compliments about the difference in my skin. Caldera Lab's Regimen Routine begins with their Clean Slate, which is a balancing cleanser to get things started. Then I add their Base Layer, a nutrient-dense fortifying moisturizer to help hydrate my skin. Then I finish off with The Good, which is their clinically proven multifunctional serum that helps my skin look and feel tighter and smoother. So if you want to upgrade your skin and confidence with products that use exceptional ingredients, head to calderalab.com and use my code DOUG to get 20% off. Again, head to calderalab.com and use my code DOUG to get 20% off. Be ready to experience a whole new level of health and skincare with Caldera Lab. Now back to the show. Sobriety really was about being told by this doctor, you're going to die, right? This idea that I had was confirmed. And when it was confirmed, it was at the point where I was told, like, you can't really take this back at this point. Like, you're terminal, basically. And that was when I decided to get sober. And, And even that, I had a relapse. So it wasn't like perfectly clean. I just, I just got told this by the doctor and never did drugs again. I I did, but that was the beginning of, I want to fight for myself to live. Once I'd been sober for a while, I kind of like woke up one day and was like, Oh, here's this other thing that I need to fix. Now I hadn't really thought about it until I'd had some time sober And with a clear head, I realized, like, I'm starting to cobble together this life that's pretty cool. I'm seeing a girl. Um, I've got a a career. And all of this is going to go away if I don't make a change. Like, you know, and I I was never thinking, like, I want to be in great shape. That wasn't the idea. The idea was more... I want to be able to go on a walk with my girlfriend. I want to go to the beach with her. I want to go to a museum with her and not be very concerned about how bad my feet are going to hurt or how often I'll need to sit down or if they have benches that will support my weight in the museum. Um, I wanted to have more of a, a normal life because I perceived that if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have a lasting relationship with her and this life that I was working towards would go away. And so that's when I started to address my weight. I feel like a lot of people struggle with wanting to go from zero to a hundred, right? They want to go from, you know, not being able to walk to running a 5k in a matter of weeks. They want to go from not being able to do a push up to, you know, doing 50 push ups in, in, in 60 seconds. Right. And people have a hard time looking at this mountain, that they need to climb and they're like, well, I'm never going to get to the top. So what's the point of trying, right? You had these two massive mountains to climb. You had sobriety and then you had this weight loss. I'm interested in like the early days specifically of, of weight loss. What did those first few weeks, first few months look like for you that really helped you get the ball rolling? Well, okay. You know, look, um, sobriety was a massive mountain and sobriety, uh, I think the thing that really helped with sobriety was this idea of like, I can't look at the mountain. I'm just going to look at the single step in front of me. And that's it. That's, and for a long time, that was all I could look at. I couldn't ever conceive of the mountain because that would have probably knocked me off my path. Every time I took a longer view back then, I would relapse. And that was even before I was very serious about sobriety. Once I got very serious about it, I even then couldn't touch. It took me a while before I could start looking at what the mountain was really made up of. And I was stuck in those same traps as that you just described. You know, I do think it's like a coming to God moment when people wake up and realize they want to lose weight. And, 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 and are kind of startled by how bad it's gotten or how out of control or how much heavier they are than they thought and how big that mountain is. You want to unzip your skin and step out. Like you want it to be that instantaneous, you know? And, and I was just as much on that, like, find me a diet I can do. Tell me how long I have to do it just so that I'm done so I can have, and, and the first diet I did was a liquid diet 
I think I did it for 60 days. Um, that was like 600 calories a day. I lost 80 pounds. And even then I wasn't even close to done. You know, I, I was 480 pounds or 470 pounds still at that point. And then I repeated those, you know, I think of them now as like get rich quick diets. That first iteration of like a, a, a yo-yo diet or a, or a get rich quick diet, I, I didn't gain that weight back. I never went back above 450 pounds. Once I was below 400, but I did go back to 450 pounds a number of times getting way below that by doing these cycles of terrible short-term diets that were meant to get me to the destination as fast as possible. If you had held up a picture of me today, back then, and said, is this the destination? I would have said, I never even want that. Like that's way beyond what the destination is. And now that I'm here, the only thing that is actually keeping me here is knowing that there is no destination. There is no, like, truly, for me, the destination is death, and all I want to do is kick that as far down the road as possible and have the best life until I get to that finish line, and the way I do that is by, you know, enacting personal responsibility and really working on my behavior. I love that, man. There is no destination. It's just about, like you said, like getting better each and every day, focusing on just the here and now, not looking at the top of the mountain, just taking it like one step at a time. Being that you've lost, you know, over 250 pounds, you're coming up on 22 years of sobriety, both incredible, incredible feats, both amazing transformations. Which one do you think was, was more challenging for you? I think they, they each have, uh, their own kind of set of challenges, right? I, I like to do drugs and eat in private, but the drugs allowed me to be social and eating didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't find that I liked to eat a lot of food and then go out and talk to people. That was not it. I wanted to eat a lot of food and lay still and, and watch TV or something like that. And with drugs, I wanted to do drugs and go be around people. It was the first time I felt super comfortable around other people. And so I think they, they each had their own set of problems. I, I will say that like having people in my life that I'm connected to every day really helps me in both areas. Um, being accountable to other people and being responsible for other people helps me in other areas. It, it, I can't say, honestly, if it was just all about me, about me for myself, I don't know that I get to where I'm at today and, and achieve the level of happiness. I, I, I feel that I get to experience every day. If it was just all about me, I, I find that having other people involved is super beneficial having people to talk to and people that have their own problems that need to talk to me about them to be responsible for other people in that way is also super helpful drugs are slightly easier simply because i don't have to do them to live and so i can just be abstinent and i don't have to think about them at all i do often have to think about not putting myself in situations where they're present um, you know, I don't like to go to bars. My wife drinks alcohol and, uh, not, not that she likes to go to bars or anything like that, but like, there will even be situations sometimes where I have to say to her, like, this, uh, this is making me uncomfortable. Let's go home. And she's totally, she gets it. And we go home, you know, if we're at a party and, and it just gets a little too, drunken that's not really for me right i don't mind people having drinks at dinner that doesn't bother me but like i have to know my limits on that food on the other hand like just putting something in my mouth that's that's tough you know especially like allowing myself the to, to eventually go out to a restaurant with people where i'm not in control of it you know i can tell them please steam the fish and steam the vegetables and don't put any sauce on it. And I'm hoping they do that, but I don't really know. So I think they both have their, 
their difficulties. I find abstinence to be slightly easier to pull off in the long term. I just don't drink. I just don't do drugs. You know, I, I had my bicep repaired. Uh, I ruptured a bicep tendon. And I have to have a long conversation with the anesthesiologist about how he can't give me opiates. And he doesn't like this. He doesn't want people to tell him what to do. But we settle on, you know, ketamine once I'm unconscious. And then I tell him, I'm going to wake up and ask for Dilaudid or fentanyl or something. And you can't give it to me. You have to sign something saying you won't give it to me. And he agrees on that. And then, you know, I don't even really like to take Tylenol and Advil, but that can get you through the pain of a surgery I've found if you're willing to experience the pain a little bit more than I had been prior to that. And so like I can figure out life without drugs. I can't figure out life without food. I also like the feeling of having a fueled up body, um, that's functioning really well. That's giving me what I want out of it every day. And I know what to put into it that will achieve that. And even still, I'll drive by a McDonald's and feel an urge to turn into the drive-thru, you know, and, and that's just what I got to deal with. And we've talked about food and the importance of playing the long game and how all these yo-yo diets didn't work and that you needed to find something that was sustainable for you. What did that look like? Well, what was the time in your life where you just had, had had enough of these yo-yo diets and quick fixes and, and what, what really helped you um, find a, a healthier relationship with, um, with nutrition and, and being able to maintain it long term? You know, reading about nutrition and then taking the leap of faith uh, that all these scientific journals were not incorrect, that carbohydrates were not the source of the American obesity crisis, right? And so if they weren't the source of the American obesity crisis, perhaps they weren't the source of my obesity crisis. And, and perhaps it was just my own personal responsibility. But I think the biggest thing was really that until, until that day, which was only like five years ago or six years ago, that until that day, I really thought of every diet as a solution. I really thought that if I just got to a certain weight and the weight was always different, right? Like at one point the weight was 240 pounds. And then when I got to 240 pounds, I thought, well, I don't feel any better. So now I need to get to 220 pounds. And then at 220 pounds, I didn't feel solved. And so I needed to get to 200 pounds and at 200 pounds, not only did I feel fat, I also felt thin too thin. I didn't feel like I'd handled anything. And then I got fat again. And so like this idea that I was going to solve anything, any of my garbage or my problems that my behavior would just naturally change if I was at a different weight, I stopped thinking about it that way. And I, and I realized like, oh, I need to apply a little bit of my, my sobriety to the way I'm dealing with food. And, and I, I need to apply some of my abstinence policies to my behavior. So like, I'm very big on being radically honest with myself. And I know that if I, I do something against what I believe to be correct for myself, that that opens the door to me doing it again and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so if, if on a day that I'm supposed to measure my olive oil, I don't, that's a problem. If I sneak food for any reason at all with the idea that I wouldn't want somebody to watch me or see me or catch me, that's a big problem. So I'm abstinent from that type of behavior. That type of behavior has no place in my life anymore. Like what, what tools, if, if any, like really helped you develop this level of self-awareness that you have around, around your behaviors? Man, I sat down... And I would go over, you know, because there, there'd be a point in time where like I'd almost come to as though I'd been blacked out eating something or having just eaten something and, and have lost time and not understand how did this happen? I didn't want this to happen. And it's happened again for the 800th time. I've now gone off this diet. What led to it? When I sat down and tried to like really figure out all the behavioral issues I had. 
I couldn't, I couldn't see them all, but I could find some and those I just started attacking and going, I'm going to do everything in my, my life is going to be built around changing those behaviors, creating new habits. Brushing my teeth in the morning is non-negotiable. I do not ever skip brushing my teeth in the morning uh, for a long time. And like, I'm not saying everybody has to brush their teeth. I think that a dentist could make a pretty good argument for that. But like, again, this is no moral judgment if you don't brush your teeth. But like, I had to make a lot in my life as non-negotiable as that. I had to make moving my body. I had to make like parking a further distance from the door. Instead of trying to get the closest parking spot, I would try to get the furthest parking spot. I, I just made changes like that, that were utterly non-negotiable. And as I made them, I was able to see more and more of my behaviors that allowed me to get deeper on the line of like waking up from a blackout, eating a Kit Kat that I bought when I was going into a Best Buy to buy, you know, uh, a camera. Right. And then I find myself in my car eating a Kit Kat and I'm like, how did this happen? Well, the decision to eat that Kit Kat wasn't made as I found it at the checkout, right? It was like there had been cracks in the foundation of my life that allowed me to get there. And I had to go back and back and back and like really figure out, oh, like, yeah, when I snuck a bite of shit that was in my fridge that I'm not supposed to eat and then didn't think about it again, that ultimately led to me being willing to make these transgressions against myself that were devastating. And so I've heard you say that, you know, one of your biggest problems was thinking that the diet, the diet was the solution and the food was the problem and that you had to really understand, you know, the, the role that your behaviors and your habits played into all of this. I know it's different for everybody, but generally speaking, knowing what you know now about your own transformation, you know, you're in the health and fit, you're in the health and fitness space yourself as well. You've interviewed a lot of, um, you know, super smart people in the health and fitness space. Like, why do you think so many people have a hard time making a health transformation, even though they know they should? I think that there is the reliance on the idea that we can outsource our responsibility. I think that that plays a big part. I think that we can take the, the problem and say the problem is external from us. And I, I think that probably is the most detrimental thing to, to making real progress. Again, this is my perception having gone through it myself. This is what I experienced. And so I assume there are probably people like me. I doubt that that's everyone, but I, I assume that there are probably people like me out there who have had these experiences and the desire for it to be fast, the desire for it to be as painless as possible, the desire for it to be as easy as possible. I think those are all instances where we're, we're, we're not really looking at the severity of the problem and taking it all in and cutting corners in places. You know, I think it really takes a, a kind of a radical approach to change your life, you know, your life is, is set out in a, in a, in a certain way because we've created these patterns that we're accustomed to. And if you want to take that all apart, I mean, it's almost like I was teaching my kid to drive the other day and there was all this stuff that I just don't think about that she was saying out loud as she drove, you know, like check the side view mirror, gently tilt to the right on the steering wheel, feather the brake, ease on the gas. Like all that stuff kind of happens remotely. But like, if you, if you were going to reteach yourself how to drive, it might not just be like setting a rule. Well, I'm just not going to speed. Right. Like I, I, I think of problems in those terms. Like if you want to relearn how to eat, it, it's not just doing one thing. It's like, really kind of complex and involved. And I think we're kind of designed to cheat ourselves too, in certain situations. Like we have these failures because some part of us is getting in the way of it. And if we don't address that, it's going to continue to get in the way. I think one of the biggest things that people struggle with is these negative thought patterns. And sometimes people are aware of it and they understand that they need to stop talking to themselves in a certain way. And a lot of times people just have no idea they're doing that because 
they don't have they haven't developed the tools to practice or develop self awareness. Um, how have you dealt with you know negative thoughts over the years, and um, like you still deal with them today? Yeah, I do. Um, and the biggest one that I ask myself is, "Am I okay? Am I okay?" And whatever answer that's not yes, I ask myself, "Is that true?" And usually I get to the place where I'm okay. And that's regardless of what's happening. You know, I I recently was having a a really terrifying situation with one of my kids. And the, the day that I woke up in the hospital with them and was, you know, having really, really dark thoughts about myself, I had to sit there and go, am I okay? Really honestly. And I was, I was okay. And I knew she was okay. I also like to cut myself some slack by like going out of my way to find something about myself that I like, which is really hard sometimes because I am my worst, my own worst enemy. Um, but I'll like stand and stare in the mirror until there is some part of my physical beingness that isn't just atrocious. And when I find that I can build on that and then I feel okay about myself. I love that, man. I love the process you take yourself through in order to like, have some sort of remedy for these negative thoughts and good to hear that everything's okay um, with your daughter. I know we were talking about that a bit um, offline before we recorded. I know one of the other things that, that can haunt people, and we've touched on this, is their people's inability to handle discomfort. I know that was something you struggled a lot with. What were some of the um, things that have helped you over the years being able to transform your relationship with discomfort? Well, yeah, discomfort is a really interesting one because I find that if I like focus on breathing or something like that, or really try to dissect the discomfort rather than trying to escape it, right? If I, if I, if I go like, what's happening right now? What is this feeling? Let me, let me like get into it. Where, where, where is this coming from? And what is it doing to me? And this feeling of needing to escape and let me get into that. And can I, can I make it another, you know, sometimes it's another second. Can I experience this for another second? How long can I experience? Can I experience this for another minute? Discomfort I've found when I stop trying to evade it, and I kind of really give it a look, it loses its power a little bit and it becomes less uncomfortable. But I find when I'm trying to get away from it, it's like overwhelming, right? When I, when the discomfort, when I'm fleeing the discomfort, it becomes like overwhelming. I, ha- I have to just flee. But when I stop for a second and I just try to experience it and break it down and, and wonder if any portion of it is just in my head or, you know, if it's external, like, you know, if I get a leg cramp and I know that if I stand up and straighten my leg, the leg cramp will go away. That's my instinct is to stand up and straighten my leg. But I'll sometimes go like, how long could I experience this leg cramp? Can I experience it for longer than last time? You know, life, I think for me is very uncomfortable sometimes and that's okay because I'm okay. And I think one of the things that a lot of people right now are experiencing discomfort over is is parenting. And you've talked about like a little bit how you're handling talking about um, drugs and alcohol and food with your kids because you don't want to give them the impression that their self-worth is necessarily dependent on how they eat or the way that they look and so on and so forth. And also you want to let them, you know, you don't want them to be as restricted as you were as a kid. Um, I'm interested to know, like, how, how specifically, as much as you're willing to share, like, how, how do you handle these conversations with your kids when you're talking about things like drugs and alcohol and you're talking about food? Like, are you super open with them about everything that you've gone through? Like, how, what do those conversations look like? Yeah, my, my youngest kid now is 16. So I am super open with them now. I wasn't super open with them when they were, you know, five years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like now I've, I've, they all know everything. Uh, my oldest daughter's 27 or about to be 27. Yeah. And so there's not, uh, there's, uh, I'm an open book to these kids now, right? There were definitely periods of my life where I had this idea of right and wrong. 
and um, especially I applied this to my children. What is right and wrong? What what do they need to be and do and uh, ways that they need to behave? And then I got to the point, man, where I start to see some my kids become adults and you, you realize that 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 their perception of themselves might be different than your perception of them. And how do you become okay with that? It's what I want for them versus what they want for themselves. And at some point, am I going to lose and, and are they going to win or are they going to lose? And I, am I going to win? And, and I don't want, I don't want that. Like, that's not a situation I want to be in. I want, I want to, I want us both to win. So there is some portion of me that works very actively on knowing what is morally correct for me, knowing what is appropriate for me, and then allowing other people and realizing that my kids are other people. They are, you know, this idea that, you know, you say my kids, like it's my car or my house or my truck, and it will be kept in, it will be maintained in the way that I expect it to be maintained. Like I have to get rid of that because they're human beings too. And their ideas don't always align with my ideas and that's okay. And none of them have had any trouble with drugs and alcohol, thank God. And that I feel is miraculous uh, because I thought for sure I was going to be burdening my children with, with this baggage. Um, but we've done okay. You know, we've always been very open with them. Uh, they would never get in trouble uh, if they called and were drunk and couldn't drive home or were at a party where their ride was drunk, they could call us, they could have those parties at our house. You know, we weren't providing drugs and alcohol to kids or anything like that, but we, I, I just wanted a very open line of dialogue with them where they didn't feel like they had to hide stuff from us. Now, I have four girls, so there were some conversations that I didn't want to have that I let my wife have because I didn't feel super comfortable having some of those conversations. So it wasn't like radical transparency with dad. I wanted the girl stuff to be open with their mom and their mom could share with me anything she felt she needed to share with me. And then there's some stuff that I'm sure she kept off of my, uh, my plate because you know, I don't need to hear about all of that. Like, you know, when, again, my oldest, I'm a grandfather too, by the way, I have a, I have a granddaughter. And so, wow. yeah. Uh, and she's wonderful. I remember my wife coming to me when our oldest daughter, and this is probably terrible to say, but our oldest daughter went on birth control and she said, um, she's getting on birth control. Would you like to be a part of that conversation or not? And I said, Nope, don't need to be a part of that conversation. That's you, you guys can do that. But with stuff like, uh, drugs and alcohol, I always wanted to be a part of that conversation and say like, you know, there's some stuff that's more dangerous than other stuff. And, and let's just be real open about it. You know, what about conversations around food? I know you talked about how you didn't want them to be like super restricted with, with the way they ate. You mentioned your one daughter is type one diabetic, but I, I would imagine you also don't want them to be at the point where they're just out eating you know, McDonald's all day, every day. Like how have you, how have you managed um, that side of things? Well, I think I actually kind of failed a little bit, but in the other way, um, I was so fucking extreme with McDonald's and stuff like that. When the, the the youngest was maybe three or four we were on a ski trip and you know the winter and these ski resort places get packed and i was taking the little kids to eat the ski resort place was just so full i was like forget it we're gonna drive somewhere and we got in the car and drove around the little town and it, everything was full like you couldn't go into a restaurant there were waiting lines and the only place that had nobody really in it was McDonald's. And so I was like, I, I have to get, you know, kids turn into gremlins if you don't feed them. And so I had to get them food. So I went to the McDonald's and these little girls started crying and said, dad, why are you poisoning us? And I was like, oh no, I've, <laughs> I've, this is not what I meant to do. 
right? Like, and I was like, no, it's just food. We don't eat it often. It's okay. Like, it's not going to poison you. And they really thought I was trying to harm them by giving them McDonald's. So that I think is like an extreme that I went when they were little, that was way too far. They have known me to be on some version of a diet their entire lives. And so I, I, I didn't succeed the way I wanted to in that. They've never had restrictions too severely in, imposed on them. And then the thing we tried to do is just put lots of healthy whole foods in the house, right? And so we, I feel like we did the best we could, but that, uh, you know, the minute the kid got type one diabetes, I, I, I feel like I failed because I got, I, I did all the restrictive nonsense that my parents did with the, with the rationalization that this kid's going to die if I don't do this. And I feel like that's probably what my parents were doing with me. So looking back now, is there anything you, like, how would you have handled all that differently? That's the thing. I don't know that I would have handled all that differently. She was four and, you know, the, you don't get trained by the endocrinologist at four to count your carbohydrates and dose yourself with insulin. So it was really my job and my wife's job to do that, to act as her pancreas, right? Which was attacked by her immune system. And so I don't know. I don't know how to win that. Um, I will say that as she got older, that kid's now 18. Um, uh, as she got older, there was a point in time where I had this, like, you know, when she was 14, 15 years old, this insistence that she have perfect blood sugar at all times. And, and that, caused a lot of problems. And it really wasn't until I said, listen, I love you. Here's what I want for you, but it's up to you to want what you want and to do what you want to do. And I am going to step away from being your blood sugar warden and allow you to figure this out. And that was a really, really scary thing to do. But you know what happened? Her A1C levels improved from that point on. The minute I, I turned over responsibility to her prior to her being an adult, she did much better. And so I don't know how I could have done that when she was four. I don't know. I love your radical honesty around all that. Um, and it's, it's good to hear that all your kids are doing well um, with everything. I know a lot of that has to do with the way that you, both you and your wife are, are great role models for them. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is I've heard you talk about like that. And I agree with you that you can't, you obviously can't um, force somebody to get sober. You can't force somebody into recovery, but you're willing to talk to somebody or you're willing to try to like give somebody the blueprint if they're like willing and ready to get into recovery. Um, and obviously I know this is something that's individual as well. Um, but generally speaking, like if there were like three to five things, if somebody's newly sober, newly into recovery, they're like, Ethan, I want to make sure that I put myself in the best possible situation. What do they need to do? I think that, um, creating a routine that is based around recovery or, or sobriety is like the number one fundamental thing I would do. And whether that's going to a meeting or checking in with somebody every day or how you start your day, that for me, having that routine and then being able to replicate it, if something changes, if you have to go out of town or if uh, you have a job that's going to disrupt your routine, whatever happens, if the weekend seems to disrupt your routine, create a routine for the weekend, having that routine, creating new habits that are all kind of centrally focused on staying sober. That is the biggest one. And then number two, unfortunately, I think that the thing that has been most positive and helpful for me has been really going through my life and finding the areas that either they were too hard for me to deal with and so would lead to a relapse or they would um, get me thinking too much about drugs and alcohol or eating bad stuff and, and actually taking things out of your routine that might lead to relapse. Like those are the two things that I found most beneficial to me is, is number one, creating a situation where I'm 
safely going to achieve the things I want to achieve and then removing barriers from my life that I need to remove. Those two things are paramount and very well said. Um, Ethan, last question. What's next for you? Uh, I have a movie coming out in um, June uh, called God is a Bullet. Very upsetting movie that I had so much fun making. And then I got a TV show, but that probably won't be out until next year on Amazon and a couple other little indie movies coming out this year. Quick question around that. How has your um, like role as an actor like trans transformed since the weight loss? I, I'm still, I'm still a pretty big guy. Like, uh, if I wear a baggy shirt or a sweater or something, I don't look super thin. I, I obviously don't look like I'm 500 pounds, but, and that could be in my head too. I, I still think I look, I can look like an overweight guy. If you put boxy clothes on me, I'm, I'm six foot one, 270 pounds. Like I'm not a small guy. So I still, get looked at for roles like that, but I also can get looked at for like, you know, ex-military guys, which I did a movie called dog where I played like this ex Navy seal. And, uh, you know, I might've been in better shape at that point than Channing Tatum was. And (laughs) that's pretty fucking cool. You know, you're very humble. You're jacked. I mean, if anybody wants to question what his, his uh, level of fitness is like, I think go look at like his one of his pinned Instagram posts um, where he's sh- absolutely shredded. So, Ethan, I wanted to thank you for coming on, being so vulnerable, sharing everything, all the wisdom that you um, all the wisdom that you shared on the podcast. I think people are going to really enjoy this conversation and they're going to want to connect with you. Where's the best place for people to find you? Instagram. Uh, just Ethan Suplee on Instagram. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to include the link to that as well as to your podcast, American Glutton, um, in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Ethan shared so much wisdom. He shared so many details of his story from the from his weight loss journey to sobriety, from everything that he went through in between all of that. We talked about parenting. We talked about um, like you know why so many people now struggle to lose weight. We talked about behavior. We talked about self-awareness. So what I want you to do is to share your biggest takeaway, tag Ethan and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. We once again thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.